Good evening. If you brought a Bible, please open it to Daniel chapter 1. You know the name Adolf Hitler. What you might not know is that Hitler had a youth group. Now, maybe not in the same sense that you take that phrase, but he had one nonetheless. In fact, there's a picture on the screen. There was an organization started in Germany in 1922 called Hitler Youth. By 1933, it was officially endorsed by the Nazi party, the dominant political party in Germany. And by 1939, attendance and participation in Hitler Youth was compulsory. It was mandatory for all young men between the ages of 10 and 18. And what the Nazi party would do through Hitler Youth is they would take these young men, especially some young women as well, and they would indoctrinate them with Nazi political philosophy. So they would teach them to believe in the racial superiority of the Aryans. They would teach them to hate Jewish people. They would teach them unquestioned loyalty to Hitler. They would train them for military service. So little kids, they would make them do military drills and train with firearms and do physical fitness so that they were raising up a, a stable of young people that were ready to go and defend and serve Germany. They would even build these social clubs that would allow them to build this sense of camaraderie and partnership around what they were doing as they politically indoctrinated them. And their whole goal of doing this was to advance the cause of the Third Reich and Nazi Germany by ensuring the fact that there would be another generation to take on the standard and to carry it forward. And that exact sort of thing is what we see happening to Daniel and to his friends in Daniel chapter 1. You see, the Babylonian Empire knew what Nazi Germany knew which is that the future of any society is inextricably linked to the young people. And if you can get the young people, you can get the future. Because the young people, and tonight here in this room, this would be you, teenagers. The young people are the ones who will grow up to hold political office, to run businesses, to build communities, to establish families and raise children. The young people eventually become the middle-aged people and eventually become the old people, and they have the money and the power. And so if you can get to the young people, then you can dictate the future. 
The Babylonian Empire is trying to make sure as they establish their dominance, like we covered this morning, over all of Mesopotamia, over all of the Middle East during this period, 600 BC, they want to make sure that their dominance will extend well into the future. And so what they do, remember this morning, they took some of the temple elements with them to Jerusalem, but that's not all they took. They also took some of the young men. And they got to work trying to indoctrinate them and to enculturate them and to make them a part of the Babylonian Empire. And that's what we're going to cover this, this evening. I want to just do two things really simply for you. As we carried on in this series called Exiled, understanding how to live with resilience in a world of hostility, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to set up a problem. And number two, I want to provide a solution. And the problem is cultural pressure. And the solution is the fear of God. So let's read Daniel chapter 1. We're going to pick it up. We've studied the first two verses this morning, and so we'll pick it up in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, sick name, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So here's what's going on. The Babylonians, they grab these young guys, and in their effort to dominate this part of the world, they are seeking to completely overhaul and reinvent who these young men are. They want to integrate them so completely into their society. They're, we're going to see in a minute, they're going to educate them, they're going to train them, they're going to teach them, they're going to give them their cultural markers, their food, their provisions, so that they can not only integrate them into their society, but so that they can use them to propagate their society. You see, the Babylonian Empire was quickly growing as they dominated new lands, which means they, knew they need new military commanders, they need new governors, they need new leaders. And what an amazing way to make sure that your empire continues to grow. What an amazing way. Just take all the young people, just train them up in your culture, and then just send them out to make sure that that culture moves forward. And that's what they're going to do with these young men. And they don't just want any young men. They want the cream of the crop. You'll, you'll notice there in the verses that are on the screen, there's a very specific kind of person that the king is looking for. He ain't looking for no scrubs. He wants the tippy top. He wants the best and the brightest. He wants the sharpest and the strongest that the nation of Israel has to provide because he knows if he gets them, it'll trickle down to all of the rest. And so he's looking for people of a certain lineage. It says of the royal family and the nobility. It means they have a heritage. They come from good stock. They come from a good family. He's looking for people of a particular age. 
And the age that, like Mikey said, most biblical scholars believe is probably between the ages of 13 and 17, a.k.a. the same age as you. Young teenagers, smart enough and capable enough to learn and to develop and to grow very quickly, but young enough to be completely impressionable and moldable to the Babylonian sensibilities. He's looking for people of a certain appearance. He says he wants them without blemish and of a good appearance. He wanted, he wanted them to be good looking and to be without defects, without blemish. And then he wants them to have strong intellect. He uses all these phrases, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. And he wants them to have a kind of maturity and competence that they would be able to even stand in the court of the king. So this is, he's looking for the cream of the crop. And once he selects them, what's he going to do with them? It's a critical part for us to understand. Because remember, we're setting up a problem and we're given a solution. And the problem is this cultural pressure. Because all week, remember, what we're talking about is that you, if you want to live as a Christian in this day and age, you are in a very similar situation to the one that Daniel was in. And the problem Daniel and his friends are facing right now is the cultural pressure to conform to the Babylonian way of living. And that's what, exactly what they're going to do to them. They're going to, they're going to push it down on them. So we'll try to unpack three important elements of it like this. What's new for Daniel and crew? And yes, that rhymes. What's new for Daniel and crew? First this, new information. First, new information. Their, their education is going to change. Do you, do you see it here in verse, the second half of verse 4? It says that they should take these kind of guys and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And then it says, just skip down a verse to the second half of verse five, and it says, they were to be educated for three years. So they were going to take these young guys, and they were going to give them a new curriculum. They would have grown up in the nation of Israel, learning the Hebrew scriptures, learning about Yahweh, learning about the covenant and the promises, learning about the character of God, learning about Moses and the power of the Exodus and how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. They would have grown up learning about the law and learning to love and know the character of God and observe all that he had commanded. And now all of that is going to change. Everything that they had learned and all of the schooling and the education that they had gained from their upbringing was now gone, and it was completely replaced with the education of Babylonian culture and the pagan gods. And they were going to, they were going to teach them intentionally and aggressively, give them a new education. So, so important. So much of who you grow up to be is contained in what you learn. How you learn and what you learn shapes who you are. This is why you look a lot like your parents. Because you are indelibly shaped by what you learn and how you learn it and who you learn it from. This is why education is so, so important. The way that you learn literature, what you read and how you read, the way that you observe art, what you believe to be beautiful and worthy of admiration, how you learn language and vocabulary, what you value, how you understand history, all of this, they were going to completely change. They were going to get new information. Their education was going to be completely overhauled. Second was new intake. Not only new information, but also new intake. Their diet was going to change. Verse 5, it says... 
the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now, there's, there's a couple things going on here. First is the, the reality that food is deeply connected to our identity. And I know this because my dad was adopted into an Italian family. And so my dad's parents like literally emigrated from Italy to Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And when we went over to my dad's dad's house, he was my papa, my nena and my papa. And when we, when we went over there to eat some food, we weren't, just, we weren't just doing nutritional intake. We were doing cultural education. Because my, my nena all day was slaving away in the kitchen, hand rolling some gnocchi and making some amazing pasta sauce. And praise God Almighty, my nana taught my mom, and my mom taught my wife Rachel, and now we still eat it in my house. <laughs> praise the Lord. Actually, this is, a, this is a true story. Two years ago, I was at Hume for the very first time, and I, just, I was so excited because everybody's all, uh, everybody's all fired up to be at Hume. And I actually, I told a story about my mom's pasta sauce, a different story. And I said, hey, I said, I was like, yo, if you're ever in Phoenix, Arizona, hit me up and I'll have you over for pasta. And straight up, a girl next year, she emailed me and she was like, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Can I come get some pasta? And you better believe she came to my house and had some pasta. Her name was Laura. It was awesome. <laughs> so I hesitate to extend the same offer, but shoot me an email. We'll see what we can do. Food, food is so much a part of our, our culture, right? This is why, this is why like Italian food, Mexican food, Ethiopian food, it's, it's, a, it's a carrier of culture. Why? Because the ingredients come from the land and the, the flavors are representative of the culture. And when you share it together, the way you eat it and what you eat is a marker of where you're from and what you represent. And so for the king to say, you're going to eat our food now, you're living in our house, and you're going to eat the way we eat, is just another way for him to push the culture on them. And not only was he offering to get them food, but he was giving them the king's food. This was a day and age where there was a massive variation between the sumptuous feast that the king would have eaten and the meager rations that the normal, everyday people would have been eating. So there's... Not only the culture is coming with it, but he wants them to be strong. And so he's giving them like the good stuff. They're going to be eating filet mignon while everybody else is on food stamps. They're, they got the good stuff in the king's house. And these young men who are being enculturated and who are being educated, they're going to get the best that the king has to give. And then last than this, they're going to have a new identity, new information, new intake, new identity. They're not only their education, not only their diet, but even their name. Verse 6 says, among these were Daniel. This is the first time we hear of him. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, all those names, those names mean something, and they're going to be replaced. You see in verse 7 there, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, in our culture and in our day and age, our names are only loosely connected to our character and our story, if at all. For us, mostly in modern Western culture, our names are merely the syllables by which we are addressed. 
But in the biblical day and age, that was not true. Your, your name carried meaning for who you were. And specifically for the Hebrew people, your name carried a message about who God was. And it was no less true for these four fellas. You'll see the meaning of their names on the screen here. Daniel means God is my judge. You ever heard the phrase, only God can judge me? Have you heard that? Daniel is the original, only God can judge me. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God has been gracious. Mishael means one who is as God. One who's like Yahweh. Azariah means God, that's Yah. Azariah, Yahweh is my help. I mean, those, those names are like, they're like mini sermons about the character of God. God helps me. God is with me. I am like God. And the names they get replaced with, the names that get swapped out, are names that represent the pagan gods. Belteshazzar means Bel, which is probably one of their gods, almost like Baal. Bel's prince. Shadrach means illumined by the sun god. Meshach means one who is as Shak, not that Shak, the pagan god Shak. Abednego means servant of Nego. They're, they're replaced with these names that represent the cultic worship of the Babylonian Empire, the, the polytheistic worship that they had in their culture, and their names just get switched out. Now, all of this happens in quick succession. The, the young guys get brought in, and they get told, hey, you're going to get new education, you're going to get a new diet, and you're going to get a new name, and all of that gets foisted upon them. Now, the whole reason we're at Hume and we're studying this week is because you need to know that this didn't just happen to Daniel and his friends. If you are a Christian in this day and age, this type of thing is happening to you. Make no mistake about it. You are being put in a situation that is just like this one where you are facing all kinds of external pressures to change and to conform and to give up where you came from and to pursue something different. And while it's not as maybe violent or as dramatic as what Daniel and his friends faced, the world around you, no less, is constantly working to shape your information, your intake, and your identity. And if you don't believe me, just think about it for a moment. Think about the information that you are getting from the world around you. This prevailing narrative in the world that is constantly being shoved down your throat. I mean, just think about for a moment, think about just the educational landscape. There, there is this prevailing narrative that in order to be a respected uh, figure in the academic world, you need to abandon any sort of semblance of your Christianity. If you believe the Bible, then that is completely discrediting to your academic reputation, and so you need to check all of that at the door. And if you are a Christian, you need to be quiet about it, but it would be better if you're actually anti-Christian. And that's why there are stories after stories after stories of kids who grew up in the church and they go to college and all of a sudden they get blown up by their freshman physics professor who just blows to smithereens everything that they once believed about the Bible. Because, right, what's happening is education. You're getting new information that's getting pumped into your life, pumped into your ears, pumped into your brain, pumped into your heart. 
That's why even now, at the youngest ages, there's all kinds of anti-Christian propaganda that's being pumped out so that we will digest it, and so that you will digest it, and so that it will change you in the way that you think, and then you'll live according to another agenda that is radically opposed to the God of the Bible. It's happening everywhere. Information is flooding into your life. And then intake. Chances are no one's forcing you to eat a peculiar diet. If they are, that would be very strange. And yet, no less, you are being flooded with all kinds of intake, with all kinds of messaging from all sides about what is right and wrong and what is good and true and what you should believe. Mikey alluded to this last night, but this is coming in massive waves through your phones and through social media. I mean, think about it for a moment. Like the the richest people in the world employ the smartest people in the world to do one thing, and that is monopolize your attention. Think about that for a moment. Money talks. The richest people in the world employ the smartest people in the world to do one thing, monopolize your attention. And guess what? It's working. They're good at their job. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of money on the line to do it. And so Mikey threw out that stat, seven hours a day. Seven hours a day. Your, I mean, rewind, rewind 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. This, we, we face a little bit of a different problem, right? The underlying issues are the same. We're sinners, we're broken, we crave the wrong things, we desperately need the redemption that God has to provide. And yet you, as teenagers, face a radically different volume of intake, seven hours a day. And you have to wonder, what kind of impact on your mind and your heart and your life would anything make? that you engaged with for seven hours a day. Think about if you studied a language for seven hours a day, you'd be fluent in a month. Think about if you worked on starting an e-commerce business for seven hours a day, you'd be a millionaire in a month. Seven hours, you are being pumped full of information. And, And let me just ask you this, do you really think TikTok is incentivized for you to follow Jesus. Do you really think that Instagram loves it when you pursue a life of holiness and purity? No. And I'm I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy who's like social media is bad, you gotta delete it, though I think your life would be better. But I am the guy who says, be careful about the intake you have in your life. And do not be deceived. You are being shaped by what you intake. And you're not just being shaped randomly, you're being shaped purposefully. And oftentimes, it doesn't take a conspiracy theorist to believe that oftentimes the way you're being shaped is radically opposed to the God that we are here at Hume Lake to worship. And so my, I'm, I'm just pleading with you at least to open your eyes and to be discerning about the intake that's coming in and to know that it's shaping you and it's molding you. You're like Daniel and his friends. You're in the Babylonian court and it's all coming in. The question is, 
what are you going to do about it? Information, intake, and identity. And man, again, Mikey hit this last night, but people the world over, and it's not just young people, though young people get a lot of the airtime. People the world over are desperately searching to understand who they are. And, and it's no wonder that there is a full-on crisis of mental and emotional health in our day and age because we have lost the ability to have something solid upon which we can stand. In a world of relative truth, like the theme last year, We've lost the ability to get in touch with what is transcendent, with what never changes, with who God is and who we are. And so we're just swimming in this void of ambiguity and confusion. And then we're being, we're being pressed down by the weight of comparing ourselves with every other person in the world at the same instant. And the result is that anxiety and depression and suicide is skyrocketing because we don't know who we are. And chances are, if that hasn't been your story, if you don't carry that burden into Hume Lake with you right now, you've walked with friends who do. You... This, this burden is heavy on this generation, and it is a crisis of identity where the names, the name says, they say, God is my judge. God is with me. God is my God. God has been gracious to me. Like if, if the story of that identity were actually to shape your existence, you would have a firm footing upon which to stand in your life so that you could face any storm and any difficulty. And yes, things are hard, but you would know that you are safe and secure in God. And yet we are we're drifting on the ocean of pain and confusion because we don't have an anchor for our souls information and intake and identity, this is happening to us right now. So the question again is this, when we're faced with all of this, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? I want to read to you the next part of the story. I'm going to read a big chunk. It starts in verse eight and the scripture will be on the screen if you don't have it in your lap and then we'll unpack a part of it. Verse eight, look at what Daniel does. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel decides, right? A lot is happening to Daniel. And Daniel picks out this one thing and he says, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing the food. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God gives Daniel favor with his leader despite this guy's hesitation. He says, hey, if you don't eat the food we give you, you're going to be weak. And Daniel very shrewdly and very wisely proposes a beta test. 
an A-B trial. He says, well, why don't you just give me a little time, let me do this for a bit, and then compare me with the other people. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, verse 12, sorry, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. If you ever doubt the wonder-working miracle power of God, he made a vegetarian strong. (laughs) Everybody knows you have to eat steak to be strong. Thank you. Verse 16, so the steward took away their food. I mean, guys, it's biblical. Romans 14 says you're weak if you only eat vegetables. Verse 16, so the steward took away their food. Vegans can email me later. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I love that Daniel is stubbornly using their Hebrew names. <laughs> Do you notice that? They got renamed, but he's like, no, nah, I'm good. I like my old one. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I want to show you something in the text that I think helps us to understand the solution to this problem. Because remember, we said we're going to set up a problem, which is cultural pressure, which we've already done, and then we're going to provide a solution, which is the fear of God. And I want to show you why I think and how Daniel does what he does, and it's set up by way of contrast. If you look again at verse 10, maybe you can go back to verse 10 on the screen there. Verse 10 says, the chief of the eunuchs, when Daniel goes to him and says, hey, I want to do this modified diet. I want to do this a different way. The chief of the eunuchs says this, I fear my Lord, the king. He says, I fear my Lord, the king. My incentive to get you to eat this food is because I fear my master. And I believe that the key to understanding what Daniel does here is just this simple reality. Daniel doesn't fear any earthly master more than he fears God. Daniel fears God. So he chooses to take a stand against this act of cultural pressure, and he chooses instead to obey God. And this is where I want to spend the last few minutes that we have together, is unpacking this reality. It's this, that you either care ultimately about the opinions of those around you, or you care ultimately about the opinion of the God who made you. 
these are really the only options that we have. You, you either care ultimately, you can't care ultimately about two things. You either care ultimately about the opinions of the people around you, or you care ultimately about the opinion of the God who made you, and you must choose. Everyone, every single person operates out of either the fear of man or the fear of God. Now, when you hear me say the fear of God, I'm not talking about being afraid of God. I'm talking about living with a reverent regard for God. I'm talking about honoring him and living your life in light of him. I'm talking about being humbled before him and knowing him as he truly is. I'm talking about the fear of God. You are either right now in your life, you are making decisions because you are driven ultimately by the fear of man. You care about the opinion of your friends and the assessment of the world around you, or you are making decisions because you care ultimately about God's assessment of your life of what he says about you. And, and, and I know that this, is, this can feel so, so abstract. Well, that sounds great, Nick. If I wanna live resiliently in a world of hostility, you're just telling me I gotta fear God? What does that even mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? And so before we go, I just wanna show you three ways you can fear God. How do I fear God? First, see his character. This is the first way you can fear God. First, you must see his character. You cannot fear a God you do not know. So you must first see God and know him. And on the day that you see God and you are filled with awe and wonder and you are laid low in humility and you are compelled to follow him and to honor him, you will be in good company because this is what people do when they see God. People don't see God and say, oh, that's nice. It's great to meet you. How you doing today? People see God and they are struck. In fact, just a week ago, two weeks ago, in our church, we began a little sermon series on the book of Revelation. And there's an image there of Jesus Christ. And he is his eyes are shining like flames of fire and his hair is white as wool. His feet are like burnished bronze and there is a sword coming out of his mouth and his face is shining like the sun in full strength. This vision of Jesus in all of his glory and when John sees this vision of Jesus, the Bible says, when I saw him, I fell down as though dead. That's what happens when people see God. They fall down. Isaiah saw a vision of the throne room and the, the glory and the majesty of a God who is holy. And the seraphim, these angelic creatures around the throne of God crying out, holy, holy, holy. The word holy just means other. It means transcendent. It means different. So different that Isaiah says this, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you want to fear God more than you fear man, you need to see his character. And the way that you do that is you open his word and you read about who he is. 
you speak to other people about him, and you spend time living in the awe of who God is. If you spend your entire life neglecting God, forgetting about God, not paying any mind or any attention to God, it's no wonder you don't fear him. Spend all your time taking input from other people. Stop for a moment and look at God. Be filled with awe and live in the fear of him. How can I fear God? I can see his character. Number two, I know and obey his word. Know and obey his word. I am convinced that this is why Daniel did what he did. Because he was doing his very best in a foreign land, in a pagan nation, to still obey the word of God, which most likely forbid him from eating some of the things that were served on the table. And so he said, I know the word of God, and I'm going to do my level best to obey it with every fiber of my being. I'm going to do what God says. And if you want to fear God, you begin by seeing his character, and then you know and obey his word. Know and obey his word. Matthew 7 says, this speaks for itself. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Those who know the word of God and stand strong on it, they can weather the storm. And those who hear the word of God, who disregard it and do not do it, the storm will collapse and destroy them. First, see his character. Number two, know and obey his word. And number three, adopt his convictions. There's a little phrase that I don't want to skip over. It's at the very beginning of verse eight, and it just says this, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Daniel resolved. That means Daniel firmly decided. And, and there's so much to learn from Daniel in this moment because what I believe Daniel did here is he made the decision before the moment arrived. And if you want to live with resilience in a world of hostility, you must make the decision before the moment arrives. You might say, what do I mean by that? Well, the world, the world will present you with a multitude of decisions, things you can choose, things that you can have, things that you can pursue, and you need to decide what you're going to do and how you're going to do it before you get there. So just in your lives, ju just talking about the realm of temptation, you will be presented with a myriad of options. The question is, will you decide beforehand what you will and will not do and why you will and will not do it? Just think about this illustration for just a moment. When you go into a store, when you go into a store and there is a, maybe the, the clerk or the, the person who's working at the store, the, the retail service person, they leave, and you have a whole bunch of merchandise right in front of you, and you could, you could easily just pick it up, and you could walk out the door. There's no security tags, there's no nothing, you could just steal it. Why do you steal it or not steal it? 
because of your convictions, because of what you have decided. Because here's the thing, if you, if you are, if you would go in there and the, the clerk leaves and you just grab the thing and you walk out, then what you have said is your convictions have not led you to believe that that is wrong and sinful and you should not do it. But chances are, the vast majority, maybe some of you have a, a stealing problem, but chances are the vast majority of you, when you walk into the store and the clerk walks away, you don't even think about picking the thing up and walking out. Why? Because you've already decided that stealing is wrong. And I'm telling you, you need to make those decisions across a myriad of areas in your life if you want to be a follower of Jesus. So when you get offered the drink at the party, when you have an opportunity to push the physical boundaries with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, when you get into a conversation where you're gonna gossip and slander, when you're gonna laugh at and participate in crude and horribly inappropriate humor, when you're gonna hit the vape or take the drugs, when you're gonna do whatever is presented, you need to decide before you get to that moment of crisis whether or not you will do it. And if the answer is no, then get there and stick to your guns. If you've decided in your heart that your convictions are going to lead you to certain decisions, then when you get to the moment of crisis, then choose. And choose according to your convictions. Daniel resolved. He decided firmly in his heart he would not eat the king's food. You have to develop convictions, and this is how you live in the fear of God. You adopt his convictions for your life. We opened by talking about Nazi indoctrination. And not every German who lived was coerced into submission. Some, some resisted. One who resisted, you may know, he goes by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of the many things that the Nazis tried to do was co-opt Christian teaching and make it seem like they had Jesus on their side. And tragically, many, many Christians and pastors and churches and leaders went right along with it. They got swept up into the tide of the Hitler youth and the Nazi regime and the glory of the Third Reich, and they just went along with whatever was being told to them. But some people stood their ground. Some people said, no, I will not do that, thank you very much, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them. Now, Bonhoeffer did some incredible things. Not only did he just stand completely, diametrically, theologically opposed to the Nazi regime and say, this is not good and right, it's evil and violent and racist and wrong. He also, get this, this dude started an illegal seminary in the countryside where he would train pastors to be part of what was called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was a church, a group of churches and pastors and preachers in Germany who said, no matter what the state does, no matter what the threat is to our lives, we will not budge from Orthodox Christian theology and it doesn't matter what happens. And so he started training these pastors illegally, sending them out into churches and they were preaching against this regime out of faithfulness to Christ. And not only that, but he started participating in these resistance activities where he actually was, he was literally, this homeboy was a spy. He was a double agent in the German intelligence service. 
And he used his information and his connections to smuggle Jews out of the country, and he eventually participated in a failed attempt, a plot to assassinate Hitler. And he did, he did all of this. He did all of this. Serving God and preaching the gospel and training pastors and helping the vulnerable and the hurting at great risk to himself. And he did it because he feared God. And eventually it cost him his life. In 1943, he was arrested. And after spending a couple months in prison, he was drug outside and he was killed by firing squad. And he did all of that, and it cost him his life. Why did he do it? Because he feared God more than he feared men. And my hope and my prayer is that God would fill you with his spirit, and he would give you courage and conviction so that you would be equipped to stand against the cultural tide of pressure that wants to rip you away from the things of Christ, and you would say, not today, not me, not now. I stand with Jesus Christ. I've seen his character. I know and obey his words. I have his convictions in my heart, and I live to please him and not you. May it be so in our hearts for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you love us and give us the opportunity to be in your family, to receive your grace, to know who you are, and then to live boldly and courageously in this world that so desperately needs to know you. So God, would you just fill us with courage? Would you fill us with hope? Would you help us to take another step on our journey of following Jesus? And God, would you just help us to recognize that though it might not be easy, it will be worth it. You will be with us. You will empower us. And you will send us for the sake of your kingdom and your mission. We love you. We need you to do all these things. And so bless our discussion, bless our night, and bless the rest of our week here at Hume. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.